Romans 9, verses 14 through 21. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to make sure that as we come before your, your word that we come with the right heart. We know our sinful ways are so present with us and it is so easy to, to slip into sinful patterns of thought and and become entrenched in thinking that is not biblical. And then when confronted with biblical truth to, to find a conflict within us, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to receive your word this morning, that we would receive what it has to tell us, or that our, our hearts would be put into the right place before you, that we would be able to learn at your feet. Humble us, Lord, and exalt yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Last time we were in Romans 9 together, I summarized verses 17 and 18 with two takeaways. The first was that God's word is the standard for our understanding of who God is and in defining what is right and what is just. We build our theology upon what God has revealed, not upon our own personal preferences or perceptions. And the second thing that we highlighted last time was that God is sovereign and completely free to do whatever he pleases. He hardens whom he hardens, and he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. I close with a quote from Robert Haldane that I'll remind you of right now. He said this, The unbelieving heart of man will revolt, and his ingenuity may invent expedients to soften the explicit declaration here, but it never can be successfully evaded. All the shifts of sophistry will never be able, fairly, or even plausibly, to explain this language in a sense that does not testify to the sovereignty of God. If we cannot fathom this depth in the divine counsels, still let us be certain that what God says is true and must be received by us. A thing may be true, yet utterly inexplicable. God's declaration is perfectly sufficient for the belief of anything which it testifies. Our reception of it does not imply that we know the grounds or the nature of its truth. We receive it not because we can explain how it is true, but because we know that God cannot lie. 
So does this mean whenever we come across something in the Bible that doesn't sit well with our preconceived notions or previous conclusions that we've come to, that we're wrong to ask questions? Is scripture discouraging us from seeking answers to questions? I would say the sheer fact that the Lord so often reasons with us indicates that the Lord graciously receives our questions. He's the one, by the way, who gave us the ability to discuss and debate and argue. Logic and reason are are not forbidden practices for Christians. Rather, they're an inseparable part of the world that God created. And he's gifted us with talents and abilities as his image bearers to engage in reason and discussion and dialogue and debate. Come let us reason together, Isaiah 1.18. And that's not just a one-time call on Isaiah. It's found, it's found as, I think, the general expectation of Scripture throughout Scripture. There's, there's a dialogue. God's talking to us. He's wanting to reason with us, which means we're engaging logical faculties, which means we're engaging in a discussion in which it makes sense that sometimes we would have questions and that we'd ask those of the Lord. We read of Paul engaging in reasoned discourses everywhere that he went with the gospel. For example, in Acts 17, 17, when Paul was in Athens, we're told he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. What's he doing there in Athens? Reasoning with people. We also read of Paul in Corinth in Acts 18.4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He's reasoning with them and trying to persuade them. So we're not surprised that we find the same happening in Ephesus. In Acts 19, 8 and 9, we're told that he, he entered the synagogue, continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Our time in the book of Romans, I believe, is just one big ongoing example of the Pauline commitment to reason with believers. The Lord, through the Apostle Paul, does not only provide doctrinal assertions, but there's a whole lot of explanations provided to us. A whole lot of reasons are given to us when we might ask the question, why? And this is not merely a New Testament practice. God has provided explanations and dialogues and discussions with his people throughout redemptive history. And we, for our part, are expected to engage our brains and adopt the logic of Scripture. We've been provided with basic logical faculties by the Lord's grace, and we're called to employ those and further develop them in obedience to the Lord. In fact, for our logical faculties to run alongside of or in concert with the logic of Scripture... In fact, contrary to Eastern and New Age meditation, which encourages the divestiture of logical processes, right? Like, think of nothing. Think of the nothingness. Try not to think of anything. Uh, that's a fool's errand, by the way. Um, when you try to think of nothing, then you're thinking of something, aren't you? And you're thinking, oh, anyway. But so so what, what do you do in order to think of nothing? Well, I think of something. I think of a dog, and I try to not think of a dog. But as soon as I've said dog, you're all thinking about dog now, right? Like, it's almost impossible to get out of your brain, right? So... This whole, this whole practice of new, e, new Age mysticism and Eastern meditation has a whole idea of trying to divest ourselves of rational thought. Christian meditation is quite the opposite. It's an encouragement to deeper consideration, further engagement of our rational powers in obedience to God's word, to the glory of God. 
Remember, we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. That's right. Luke 10, 27, Mark 12, 30. Now, we're right to say that the Christian faith is more than just the engagement of the mind, but it is not less than it. The Christian faith doesn't happen apart from it. It's more than just the mind, yes, but it's not the absence of the mind. It's not circumventing the mind. The Christian faith is not a leap into the dark, as some have tried to describe it. Just take the, that's what faith is, leap into the dark. Not true. It's stepping into the light. It's having your eyes opened, the blindness removed, deaf ears opened to hear truth. But is there a time in which our reasoning can go awry? Is it possible that we sin in the middle of our arguments? Can our debates and disputes arise from ungodly attitudes and proceed in ungodly behaviors? Absolutely. We should all be able to say yes to that. And you don't have to do an in-depth, you know, social research study with careful controls to figure that one out, do you? You need go no further than your own heart. Our reasoning is so often corrupted by sinful attitudes and demeanors, preventing us from being sincere and honest in our disputes. There are times in which our reasoning is wrong because we're just ignorant. Sometimes we're wrong just because we're wrong. We're in error. We didn't know better. But there are other times in which our reason is actually, we're manipulating reason by sinful inclinations. We're, we're willing to sacrifice truth on the altar of being able to pursue sin. Especially if it means not being uncovered in our sin. The traditional term that was used to describe what happens when logic and rhetoric are twisted in an effort to fallaciously get somebody to go your way. It was called sophistry. And while sophistry, that word sounds like sophisticated, sounds like as if it's wise, it might not at all be that. And in fact, several forms of fallacious reasoning are easily engaged in by common people who have had no training in rhetoric. Why is that? Because you don't have to get a degree in duplicity to be good at it. You don't have to go to school to be good at sin, do we? We see it inherent to the very makeup of the fallen man. All of us being descendants of Adam, we, we carry that with us. And so from the earliest of ages, right, we can look at a child who's got chocolate all over the face and ask them, have you eaten the fudge? And they go, no, you know. Um, we, we don't have to teach a child how to lie, right? We don't, have to, we don't have to teach someone how to engage in duplicity. And many of us are well-versed in it. Many of us have spent our whole lives getting better at it. If anything, it's just like a refinement of the skill that happens the more that you engage in it. Now, our ability to know the origin or motive of someone else's reasoning might not always be clear. Duplicity often presents itself as being sincere, right? I mean, the people who are the best at faking people out are those who seem the most genuine, seem the most sincere. Some lines of argument might just be wrong. The person might not try to be engaging in some weird manipulation. They just might be wrong also. That's a different thing too. But there are cases in which questions and arguments arise from an inherent rebellion or even an inherent blasphemy within the heart. Now, in most cases, I think we'd probably err on the side of grace and love hoping all things as we interact with others. We would usually not take the tact that we're about to talk about here this morning until it became quite clear that we're dealing not with just error, but with duplicity, with some sort of blasphemy of the heart. But the Lord has no lack of knowledge of the human heart. 
All things are laid bare and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13. There were moments in Jesus' ministry in which he exposed this sort of fallacious reasoning. Logic that had been taken captive by sinful desires. Think about Mark 2 and Luke 5 where we find the parallel passage. We read of an occasion where Jesus healed a paralytic in Capernaum who was being lowered down through the roof to him. Jesus said to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And as a result, we're told that there's some scribes that were sitting there who, quote, quote, reasoned in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately we're told Jesus, aware in his spirit of what they were reasoning in their hearts, said to them, why are you reasoning these things in your heart? Man, what's that been quite a moment, right? Parents, wouldn't that be a wonderful power to have with your kids? Like, oh, I know what you're thinking right now. Sometimes we actually do, right? Um, some of the kids are like, how did you know that's what? Because I was once there. I, I'm still struggling with the same sins too, right? I notice here Jesus says, why are you reasoning these things in your heart? Which is easier to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. This dovetails nicely with a comment that, Pastor Michael made at the end of Sunday school this morning. Here's a miraculous event. Jesus actually heals this man of his paralysis. He tells him to get up, pick up his pallet and walk, and he does it. But notice the reason why he's doing it. The, the, the bigger, import, more important thing here is that this man's sins are forgiven. But meanwhile, in order to prove the fact that he is who he said he is, that he is God, he shows his power over this man's paralysis. But note, don't miss this part. He perceived their reasoning. <laughs> Jesus responds to their inward reasoning of heart. They were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because they, they, they denied his deity. And so Jesus graciously offers them further proof of exactly who he is. On another occasion found in Mark 11, Jesus came to Jerusalem and was walking in the temple the religious leaders approached Jesus and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus answered them saying, I'll ask you a question and you answer me and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. At this point, the religious leaders were told began reasoning among themselves saying, okay, if we say from heaven, He's going to say, then why didn't you believe what John had to say about him, about Jesus? But if we say that John was actually from men and not from God, we're afraid of the people because they liked John and they thought John was a prophet. So the answer is Jesus, uh, we don't know. You see, there's a big difference between asking Jesus a question from a genuine desire to know by what authority he did what he did and those asking questions in order to entrap him. Notice that their reasoning among themselves was not in an effort to pronounce truth or to declare their position on John's ministry. Their discussion was one of measured political expediency. We're in election time, aren't we, right now? This is one of the things, big pet peeve for me, right? How often are politicians just avoiding questions? Because they know if they actually answer the question, they're going to upset somebody, one side or the other. So instead, we often what you find is they evade questions. Because it's politically expedient for them to just be silent on the issue rather than declare wholeheartedly their stance. Or at least that's often been the case 
with many politicians. It's not everyone, but with many of them. One thing is certain in their question, they didn't ask Jesus because they're actually concerned about the truth. They don't consider facts. They don't discuss implications of those facts. What do they discuss? They consider consequences. They, it's pragmatism that's going on here. What, what response can we give that won't lose this argument? Um, what, what response can we give where we won't lessen our popular support? We want the people to be supportive of us, but we also don't want to be found like supporting this Jesus. So suddenly this big public moment that they've orchestrated, hey Jesus, by whose authority do you do these things? Or who gave you the authority to do these things? All of a sudden, their big public moment has turned around on them. Jesus put the question to them, and he's now causing them some problems. If we say John is from heaven, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe what John said about me? Because he testified about Jesus. He bore witness to Jesus. He said that Jesus was the Messiah. But if we say that John was from men, well, that's going to bring us harm because the people held that John was indeed from heaven, that he was a real prophet. These chief priests and scribes and elders are ready to sacrifice truth and integrity on the altar of expediency. They don't want to give weight to Jesus' ministry by supporting John. They also don't want to deal with public criticism if they publicly reject John. So they lie. Don't miss this. They know what they think. They say, I don't know. That's not true. They're liars. It's a deliberate claim of ignorance to avoid plain implication of the facts presented to them. They are punting on the question, and they are lying. Now, okay, it's easy to find that. Now let's turn the gaze towards ourselves. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been asked a question before and you said, I don't know, when you did know? And you really did have thoughts and opinions and beliefs about that thing, convictions about that thing? But it was expedient in the moment to just say, I don't know. It's easy sometimes to find these things in our own kids. <laughs> I've had moments with my own kids where we're talking about something which we all know plainly they know. And I get the response, well, I didn't know. Yes, you did. You did know. And it's very easy as a parent to get frustrated in those moments. And then, you know, you're preparing a sermon like this, and you're thinking about moments like that, and then you're thinking about yourself, and you're like, how often do I do that? How many times am I guilty of the exact same thing? You ever been questioned by a boss or by someone in authority who is asking you a tough question, a difficult question, one that might bring you harm, might cost you issues at the job or elsewhere, and you punted? You said, I don't know, when you did? How often have we developed convenient ignorance? These passages indicate that there are times when questions are not sincere. These guys did not come to Jesus because they wanted to figure out, by whose authority do these things so we can also follow you? And that's not their indication at all. They don't like what Jesus is doing. They're trying to expose him as a fraud. They're trying to figure out how can we bring him down a notch? And so when Jesus reverses the question to them, they're not willing to deal in honesty. They're not willing to deal in sincerity. So guess what Jesus says to them? Neither will I deal with you there. You will not get an answer from me. Because you're not seeking truth. You don't care, actually. Your heart is wrong. You're insincere. With all that in mind, I think we're ready now to consider Romans 9, 19 through 21. Paul here is dealing with a less than sincere question. 
The objection being responded to here is not a humble man asking for helpful clarification. Instead, what we have here, dear friends, is an arrogant man accusing God of injustice. And God has been incredibly patient and gracious with men who bring their sincere and searching questions. I think Romans, the whole book of Romans, is a great example of how many times does Paul ask questions that were certainly given to him during his ministry. He proposes the objections that often come whenever he preaches the gospel, and then he responds to them with answers. He talks with people rationally and reasonably and with logic and argumentation. But you get to a point where it becomes evident we've traveled into something else. And I think that's what we have here. The arrogant need to be reminded of their place. And this text is, a need, is very needful for that exact reason. Calvin admonished that we need to restrain our questions about predestination to the revelation God has given us. And he quoted this. He says, quote, But as we are men to whom foolish questions naturally occur, let us hear from Paul how they are best met. He says it's better becoming of us to just silence ourselves when we get to that point. But as we are foolish men, to which this naturally often happens, how about we hear how the Apostle Paul responds to that situation? This morning in a sermon entitled Know Your Place, we're going to see three things together. The first is this, the telltale sign that manifests man's conceit or arrogance or pride. Conceit, arrogance, or pride. You see, the Lord welcomes our sincere questions, and he provides many answers. I already mentioned this in our introduction. There are many, many questions that are asked throughout the Bible and answered throughout the Bible. It's not as though God discourages us from asking questions. In fact, it's a sign of wisdom to be found in the position of asking questions. The person who humbles himself, who doesn't think they know it all, is the one who asks questions. That's the appropriate position for us to be in, asking questions, humble before the Lord, looking to him for answers. Many answers are given. Notice, I did not claim that all answers are given. Whatever is necessary to life and godliness has been provided to us. See 2 Peter 1.3. But there's all kinds of questions that are answered in Scripture. As a matter of fact, this is an interesting thing. I kind of looked through Romans and... Just note how many questions are asked in the book of Romans. I, I, I listed a whole bunch of them. I'll just pick a few of them. Romans 2.3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? 3.1. What advantage has the Jew? What benefit is of circumcision? 3.7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? 3.31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? 4.10. How then was it credited? while he was circumcised or when uncircumcised? Uh, 6.15, what then? Shall we sin because we're under the law, but under grace? 7.7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? 7.13, therefore did what that which is good become a cause of death for me? 8.35, who will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword? 9.14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Do you hear all the questions? And there's more in there. There's more in that section. There's more to come. Lots of questions asked and answers given. And then the verses before us this morning, do you notice? We have five more questions in this text. Do you notice that all these words are questions? There's not one statement here. 
Now, the statement's implied by the questions, <laughs> but it's just all statements. I think that Paul here is just following Jesus' example. He's answering objecting questions with other questions. There, there's, there's wisdom to this. This is what's a little bit behind the classical learning idea of the Socratic method. Instead of just telling people things, ask them questions, get them, draw, draw out from people, engage their brains, make them think, make them reason. Look at 919. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? 920. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why do you make me like this? Will it? 921. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? They're all questions. All questions. Here's indicators that we're dealing with something different. Is there such a thing as a bad question? People have often been told, you know, there's no such thing, you, you hear teachers say, there's no such thing as a stupid question. False. <laughs> there are stupid questions. And there are bad questions. There really are. Why do people say things like that? Well, teachers often say it because they want to encourage students to say something, right? They're trying to encourage genuine inquiry from students. And because we all struggle with pride, we all have a hard time admitting our lack of knowledge on subjects. You know, when your mouth is silent, nobody knows what you don't know. But when you speak, then they know what you don't know, right? And so a lot of times we're just quiet. And so this, this is usually used as an encouragement, like, hey, talk to me. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, technically, there are stupid questions, and there are all kinds of other types of questions as well. There are all sorts of bad questions. There are worthless questions. There are incorrectly phrased questions. There are questions that rest upon false biases and false presuppositions. There are questions that are rooted in fallacies. There are loaded questions. There's all kinds of bad questions. And then there are what I think we have here, disingenuous questions like the ones that were asked of Jesus in order to entrap him, some questions betray a wrong motivation, a wrong attitude, a wrong overarching worldview or perspective. Questions can be intended to harm or disparage or insult or entrap. And as a result, those questions might not be worthy of reply at all. Why dignify such questions that are just posed in order to try to make light of sobering truth? There's a reason why the scriptures talk about not casting your pearls before swine. There is, an, there is an occasion for that. Person's just wanting to disparage the name of Christ? No, I'm not going to engage in this conversation any further. The twofold question found in verse 19 betrays a wrong heart or a wrong motivation or a wrong attitude. Notice this. Verse 6 of chapter 9, the question is, is God unfaithful to his promise? The question there is, there's all these Jews that weren't believing in the Messiah. Does that mean that God is failing to fulfill what he promised he would do? It's that question. So, Real question, and Paul's interacting with it. Verse 14, even asks the question, is God unjust in this? Answers further, and then we get here to verse 19. And I think the question, the two questions that are asked here is almost amounting to, then God's just cruel. God is just an evil tyrant. You'll say to me then, from this phrase, I gather that Paul was used to this objection, and therefore he's cutting it off at the pass. What are you going to say to me? Why does God still find fault? The only other place where this, phrase, this uh, verb, find fault, is found in the New Testament is in Hebrews 8.8. 8. In Hebrews, the reference is to the first covenant being found to have faults. Blame could be found within the house of Israel and Judah, such that a new covenant would be required, would be needed, would be provided. 
The objection here is with God assigning fault, assigning blame upon sinners if they're being hardened by him. He just got done saying God mercies those whom he mercies and he hardens those whom he hardens. And so then the objection comes, well then, who has ever resisted God's will? How can God find fault in the sinner? Who has ever resisted the will of God? Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning, ancient times, things yet to have taken place. Saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The objection here is arguing that God cannot judge sinners if it is he who is his sovereign will is in place, which is itself irresistible, then how can he judge sinners for their sin if he's hardening them? Now, it's hard to hear tone in written communication, isn't it? It's also hard to sense manner. It's one of the difficulties of email and letters and any written communication. How often have you had something that you wrote misinterpreted by someone else? How often have you misinterpreted something that someone else wrote to you? It's sometimes difficult to do so. And here we have a written phrase, right? And on its, on its merits, you could take it one of two ways. You could say, well, is this guy just really asking? Like, how does this then fit? How does divine, like, sovereignty fit with man's responsibility? That's a real question. That's a good question. It's one that we, we'll talk a little, a little bit more next week. But, but what's indicated by the way Paul responds is that he's responding to an objection that's arising from the heart from a bad place. Why can I say that? Because of the nature of his response to it. You can't hear the tone when you're reading the words, but by the nature of Paul's response, you know what the tone is. That's the point. Paul's responding to these words that have been offered to him, and he's re we recognize from his response that they're not being offered humbly. Lloyd-Jones said this, Paul is surely rebuking the spirit in which this question is being put. If we take up this attitude towards God of contradicting him or imputing unrighteousness to him or suggesting that he is unjust, already our spirit is wrong and we cannot hope to be right anywhere in our understanding of the teaching. He said from the outset, we're saying God is false, God is wrong, God is unjust. Well, yeah, you're never gonna get anywhere with that person. What they need is rebuke and that's what is given. Now, here's, here's the riddle. What is it that an arrogant man wants the least but needs the most? What is it that an arrogant man wants the least but needs the most? Rebuke, right? <laughs> the one thing he does not want is to be told that he's wrong. Why? Because he's self-important. He thinks he has it all together. The last thing that he wants is someone coming into his, his life that's telling him he's doing something wrong or thinking some wrong way. This is what always makes it so hard, doesn't it? Because usually that's the very person, if you try to correct them, they're going to like jump all over you, aren't they? Maybe you have some people like that in your life. A person who can never be corrected. And it's very, very difficult to approach them about anything. Meanwhile, what that person actually needs is a swift kick. <laughs> they actually need it, right? But often the problem is they won't receive it. Consider the book of Proverbs. The wise man is the one who receives counsel, receives correction. The fool is the one who will not listen to it. Point two, the sort of scenario that demands outright rebuke. I'm going to see, show you how Paul sets this straight. He, it's almost like a, a bone is out of joint and he's going to set it back into place. He does it through two means. Number one, he does it by address. He sets things straight by address. He resets the bone here, if we could call it that, by address. Don't miss the fact that Paul's response is first and foremost a rebuke here. 
Explanations are not owed to arrogant people. Arrogant people will refuse your explanation anyway. As a matter of fact, if you're talking with an atheist about some matters like this, it would be a fine thing to ask them. If I was able to answer this question, would you actually consider it? Would you actually listen to it? And they're like, no, I hate God. And I don't want, okay, well then why are you asking me a question? <laughs> doesn't matter what I say to you, you're not going to change. Okay, okay. Then probably the words I have to say to you are kind of like what the Apostle Paul says here. Who are you, oh man, the one answering back to God? Those who presume that they sit in judgment over God, that put God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis would say, put him into the, the witness chair to be accused and cross-examined, like we're the ones judging you. You're the one that's under accusation. We're here to critique your ways and your purposes. What Paul says here is that those people have another thing coming. They have another thing coming. Who are you, O oh man, O oh anthrope? Here is the reminder of the objector's place, a man. Who are you, O oh man? One created by God in God's image, a product of God's creative power. This phrase happens two other times in Romans, back in, back in chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 3. Both times there, as here, it's meant to put man in his place. Who are you, O oh man? Let me be clear. You nor me nor any other man is God's judge. Nor are we God's peers. Oh man, who are you? Hear God say that. Oh man, who are you? The one answering back. By the way, that phrase, the one answering back, only happens here and in Luke 14, 6, where it describes the Pharisees being left without a reply to Jesus. Jesus responds to them, and they're left without a response. They're left, left without a cross-exam. <laughs> they're left speechless. Who are you, old man? The one answering back to God. Here's the foil to man. The created versus the uncreated. The one who reigns over all with power and wisdom and might and glory. And you, the creature. Mark the contrast. Man, God. Here's the address. Here's the start place for an arrogant man. Remind him he's a man and that God is God. It's one of the signs of our rebellion that we would need to be reminded of this. Isn't it? You didn't make yourself. one of the signs of our rebellion that we need to be have these reminders. There's a vast chasm that separates finite creatures from the infinite creator. Before we hazard speaking, I think it's appropriate to remember who we are, who we're speaking to, if we have a place to speak, and if we are going to speak, what is it that we're going to say? What's fitting to that relationship? Anyone would think that way, right? If you're going into like the presence of like City Hall, you'd be thinking about who am I? What's my place here? What am I allowed to say? What are the sorts of things I should say? Considering the authority that's being played play there. And if we feel that way with like government officials or presidents and kings, how much more ought we feel that towards the king of kings, the lord of lords, the sovereign over all? You see, we might appropriately check the theological box that says, God is sovereign <laughs> and I'm his creature. I'm sure in this room there'd be very few people, unless you just came off the street or you're asked by a friend and you're like, no, I'm actually, I don't have anything to do with God. I'm atheist. Okay, there might be a couple of you in here like that. But I would say the vast majority of us in here would say, yes, God is sovereign and yes, I'm his creature. And yet, do we need to be reminded of this? How often have we put questions to God that are unfitting? Do you remember who we really are? 
When adverse circumstances arise and difficult theological questions perplex us, do we continue to maintain a rightful perspective of ourselves and of God? Do we remember, who am I, man, and him, God? Lloyd-Jones says, realize your smallness, realize your insignificance, realize your finite character, your mortality, your sinfulness, your perversity, and realize the smallness of your mind and your understanding. Be warm, be filled. (laughs) We need to be reminded of this, don't we? Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you have thought of him? And the son of man, that you care for him. Contrary to the message of Robert Schuller and Joel Osteen, what we need is not self-help pop psychology. We don't need motivational talk centered on the greatness of man. What we need is to be reminded of our smallness, our finitude, our errors, our foibles, our limitations. And then from a place of humility, consider the greatness not of us, but of God. You see, if man is instructed to look inward to find peace and solace and comfort and strength and happiness, dear friend, it's a fool's errand. You don't have the resources, you don't have the stuff to support that. But when a man is told to look to his creator, to his sovereign, to his Lord, to his master, to his savior, there can be real peace, real solace, real strength, real happiness. The arrogant man shakes his fist at God. He raises his voice up to God. He reasons in his heart against God. And you know what that guy needs to remember? That fist was given to him by God. That voice, a gift from God. The reasoning power within him, a gift from God. All the things he raises against God has been given to him by God. What's the call of the gospel? The call of the gospel is for you to admit that you've been at at war with God. You've been at enmity with God. You've been hating God. And this... Lay down your weapons as if you could actually do something against him. Cease from your futile fighting with God. Repent of your rebellion. Admit to God that you're a sinner through and through. Admit you can't make things right on your own. And trust in God's son, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness and died in the place of sinners, providing for their forgiveness. But I told you this rebuke is twofold. It starts with an address. The rebuke just remembering, you man, he God. The second part of the, the rebuke is, is setting things straight by analysis. Look what he says here. Will the thing formed, the plasma, sounds like plastic, doesn't it? Will, will the thing formed, plasma, say to the one having formed it, the plazanti, why did you make me like this? By the way, this, this word plasma, the only time it happens in the New Testament, plazanti happens one other time in First. Timothy 2.13, when speaking about Adam and Eve being formed. What's the point being made here? Man is the one formed, God is the one forming. Just as it would be absurd for a statue to complain to its sculpture, sculptor, why do you make me like this? Or if one of us was to carve a chess piece and for the chess piece to turn around on the board and go, hey, I didn't really want to be a knight, I wanted to be a queen instead. You know what? You can't, this is ridiculous. Haldane remarks, the reason discernment between right and wrong which, which he possesses is the gift of God. It must then be the greatest abuse of these faculties to employ them to question the conduct of him who gave them. <laughs> Saying he's like, when you're employing reasoning to try to show God an error, do you understand you're using an ability that God gave you and you're twisting it to try to make him look bad? 
I mean, certainly one of the distinctions between man created in God's image and all of the animals that inhabit the earth is that we can sit down and have deep philosophical and spiritual discussions, can't we? And everybody's like to talk about, look at what this ape or chimpanzee can do. I'll tell you what I've never seen him do is, you know, sit down and have a philosophical discussion about the nature of, you know, monkeys and <laughs> what, what they're like and what further advancements they might make, you know, like... Everything we have is a gift from him. And if you respond, well, I'm no piece of plastic. I'm no clay pot. I agree you're not. But I want to also tell you, you're closer to that than you are to God. We're created stuff. He's the uncreated. We are finite. He is infinite. We are frail and weak. We're subject to corruption. And God has none of those things. We look more like cracked pots than we do like God. In that regard. This is among the reasons that the doctrines of grace, I believe, are so important to Christian living. They continually humble man and exalt God. They remind us of our place before the Almighty. Brings me to my last point. Point three. The simple illustration that carries worldview-shaping truth. The simple illustration that carries worldview-shaping truth. First note with me, the potter's authority. When we attempt to stand against God, verse 19, or answer back to him, verse 20, we demonstrate that we have completely forgotten who we are and who he is. Has not the potter authority over the clay? God the creator is the rightful sovereign over all. Right and privilege justly belongs to him. Any other authority or possession is derivative from him. He is over all. He owns all. He does all that he pleases. And Paul is not here just coming up with something newfangled. Let me draw your attention to Job chapter 10 verse 9. Remember now that you made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing... Uh, you are making say he has no hands Isaiah 64 8 but now O Lord you are our father we are the clay you are our potter all of us are the work of your hand or as we had Jeremiah 18 6 read can I not O house of Israel deal with you as the potter does declares the Lord the old like the clay in the potter's hand so are you in my hand O house of Israel I believe that Isaiah 45, 9 probably seems to best match Paul's point here. But regardless, notice that this illustration is one that arose multiple times in the Old Testament. So once again, what is Paul doing here? What is his instinct? How does he respond to things like this? How does he respond to objections? Continually, what's the pattern? Go to the scriptures. Go to the word of God. What does the word of God have to say about this? The word of God has addressed it. And the more and more we know the Bible, the more and more we'll be equipped to respond to questions like these. I mean, here's the question. Does the Bible present God as hoping to accomplish his ends if only we might cooperate with him? 
responding to our actions, or rather is God presented to us as free and able to accomplish all his good pleasure, working through many ways to bring to pass his own purposes. Even a cursory reading of the scriptures shows the latter to be the case. And if you think the former, your view of God is way too small. This is often the problem that besets sinful man. High thoughts of man and low thoughts of God. And what the scriptures continually do for us is reorient our perspective to take on a low view of man and a high view of God. We see the potter's authority and we also see the potter's choices. Look at what it says here. Out of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and one to dishonor. Here's a good reminder. Notice it says out of one lump. We all come from the same lump. What's that lump? (laughs) Well, Romans has already talked about this too. Go back to Romans 5. We're all originally from Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. And therefore, we're guilty of Adam's sin. And we're deserving of damnation. We could also say we also deserve judgment by our own deliberate sins and disobedience. But we're guilty in Adam. Remember from previous weeks, we're not owed mercy. We're only owed judgment. Mercy and grace are free, unmerited gifts from God. If you say that God is owing you mercy, you're no longer talking about mercy. Now it's a matter of justice. Justice talks about what is owed, what is, what is uh, determined to be the, the righteous standard. Here, what we see is mercy and grace, undeserved favor. If we were all condemned, justice would be served. But God has chosen to make some vessels for one thing and others for another. Can he not do what he wants with what is his? That's the question. Let that sink in for a minute. Can God not do what he wants with what is his? Hendrickson said, if even a potter has the right over the same lump or mass of clay to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, then certainly God, our maker, has the right out of the same mass of human beings who by their own guilt have plunged themselves into the pit of misery to elect some unto everlasting life and lead the others to the abyss of wretchedness. So let me ask you this. If someone today, you got home from church and you found that somebody had just taken over your house, Said, oh, yes, I'm sorry, sir, this is now my house. You would say, what? He said, yes, I have now taken possession of this house. By whose authority, you would ask? By my own authority, it's mine. You'd say, foul, no, thief. Even the youngest of children knows how to say, mine. <laughs> we feel the right of ownership intensely, don't we? I'm sure as parents, you've had moments in which you've seen your child furiously demand their rights over some possession (laughs) which you gave them, right? (laughs) Like, can you share your ball with Timmy? Like, no, it's mine. It's like, well, I gave you that ball, man. (laughs) Like, you didn't buy that ball. Like, I gave you that ball. Can you you share with him just right now? We We encourage them to share. We might even remind them that it was only theirs by your generosity. But this is not just a childish issue is it we too as adults need to be reminded that all we have has been given to us by God's generosity who's actually the owner of the shirt on your back the house that you live in the air you breathe the car you drive the job you have the intelligence you you possess the abilities physically that you have who's really the one that gave you all that stuff who really owns it Now, this doesn't remove the ideas of ownership. The Bible certainly does forbid stealing. The Bible also encourages giving, and you can only give if you owned it, right? This is the issue that happens with Ananias' fire, remember, when 
even Peter says to him, didn't you own it while it was yours? Like, it was yours. You didn't have to give it and then lie, like, only give a part of it and then lie that you've given it all. Like, now there's problems coming your way. But it was yours before that. You aren't required to give it. Like, giving, in order to give, you have to have ownership of the thing in order to give it to someone else. So, the ideas of ownership in lesser senses is not removed by this. But for just a moment, when we think about this, remember, what I own is really given to me by God. And if I feel intense feelings of ownership over that which is mine, how much more is it appropriate that God feel that way? And how dare we say that he can't own what's his? When we have no problem saying, I own this. What does it say about us that we cry foul if God chooses to make one vessel for one purpose and another for another when he owns it all? If there is anyone who is right to say, mine, it is the Lord God Almighty. He can say that in the most absolute sense. It is all his. Remember, we are all formed from one lump. All of us were worthy of judgment and wrath. Some indeed will receive the judgment they deserve. We all deserve that judgment. Meanwhile, God, out of sheer unmerited favor, grace, and mercy, will rescue some from that destruction. Let me close with a couple of quick other considerations that didn't fit neatly into my outline that I wanted to mention quickly. First of all, or, or kind of quickly, right, Leah? Okay, kind of quickly. Notice, Paul in this passage does not back down from statements that he's made. He does not reply to this objection by correcting the premise. So remember, the premise here is, well, if God is sovereign and he's doing what he wants, then like, how is it fair that he punishes people in hell? That's kind of the gist of it. And, and Paul doesn't go, oh, you misheard me. I, I, oh, I'm so sorry, friend. Like, that's not what I was saying. What I was saying is that, like, God looks down the, four, the corridors of time and he, based upon his knowledge of what you would do, chose you after you chose him. Like, like because notice, if that was the case, is this objection there anymore? No. Everybody's like, oh, that sounds perfectly fair to me. <laughs> Are we completely great with that? But that's what Paul does. He doesn't back away from this. This objection wouldn't be even be offered. And if it was made, it would have been dispensed with by explaining there was a misunderstanding. If Paul's meaning was just that God selects on the basis of what he knows we would do or something of this nature, then no one would object in this manner. Or if God, as some other commentators of Romans 9 have said, this is really just talking about like the, the positions that people play in redemptive history, like whether Israel's going to be doing it or Gentiles are going to be doing it. That's all this is really talking about. It's like their service to God. Again, would you have this objection then? And you'll see in coming in next week, you'll see that where this is going towards, it's not just talking about earthly things. We're talking about eternal realities, destruction versus life. All of it would seem quite fair if that's all that he was saying. But it's not what he's saying. And he doesn't back down from it. Rather, his first answer to this person is exposed that their objection is being wrongheaded from the start. Rather than... Their question arising from a humble man seeking to know God's ways as best they can be received. This objector is fighting against the truth that's already been revealed. The thing most needful to that person is rebuke, and that's why he gets it. Who are you, old man? The one answering back to God. Also note that this passage indicates that objections to God's sovereignty and salvation are nothing new. It also makes this, this is clear. This is not a modern, it's not a modern beef with Romans 9 that has caused like Arminianism and Calvinism to be in debate with one another. This is the exact same objection (laughs) 
that has existed from biblical times, from the days of Paul. When he was announcing the gospel, this question was arising, and this antidote was being provided. Who are you, O man? The one answering back to God. This is not a new thing. It might be new to you, <laughs> especially if you haven't thought about these things before. It might be new to you, but it's not a new thing. It's the exact same objection that has existed from biblical times. This objection is not the result of modern thinking or recent discoveries. It's always been a plight of fallen man's heart to attempt to accuse God of being unfair or unjust if we really believe he's sovereign. See how it works? If you really believe that God is sovereign, if he's really ownership of all things, if he's really over everything, and that includes, if everything includes salvation, if he's over the whole thing, then you will find immediately this objection within the human heart, the sinful, rebellious human heart that says, unfair, unfair. So the point is this. Before you can receive further understanding of this, and again, we're going to come up to limits of how far we can go, but before we can receive anything from the Lord regarding this, our attitude must first be rearranged. Our attitude has to be addressed. If you do not come humbly before the Lord to discuss this, it will not go well. You will not receive it. You'll be just as arrogantly hard as you were beforehand, thinking yourself to be God and him to be under you rather than the other way around. Now, let me just encourage you with this. If you would admit today that you've been in an improper headspace or heart place regarding these matters, what do, you, what do I do? What do I do, Pastor? Like, I, I, I really have railed against this. Like, it doesn't sit well with me. Like, I just don't like it. It's like, I don't know why, what it is, but it just seems to just grate at, like, something inside of me. Like, I want autonomy. I want to say that I'm my own thing. I encourage you to look at the example of Job. When the Lord appeared to Job out of the whirlwind, remember, Job goes through a lot of stuff. Remember, we're given some background information as to what was going on there, right? The devil tells God, like, you know, the only reason why Job follows you is because everything's good for him. If you take away all that stuff, let me kind of mess up his life a little bit. He'll curse you and not want anything to do with you. Job is remarkably resilient through the book, but that doesn't mean that Job is without sin. There, there are some things that he says that he shouldn't have said. I think if you're an honest reader of the book, to think that Job is completely without any fault in it is, is not true. Why can I say that? Because of God's correction to Job at the end. God appears to, to Job out of the whirlwind, and what does God do? Notice, he doesn't say, hey, by the way, Job, Satan was had this thing. It was like a little deal we were having on the side. I wanted to show Satan that I'm actually more powerful than him. And he doesn't say any of that. Job isn't told any of that. What instead is Job told? God just starts going on a litany of all the things that God is great at. And he shows Job his smallness. Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? Are you able to fish Leviathan out with a hook? Do you call out the stars by name? And when God gets done pretty much telling Job, what is God saying there? Who are you, O man? The one answering back to God. And when he's done, you know what Job does? And this is my encouragement to you. If you're in that place, if you're in a place of like kind of broken, kind of undone, kind of like, wow, like I, I, I kind of knew this within my heart all along that like that's the way it really should be, then, then do what Job did. What does Job do? 
Job says, answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's referring to himself. Therefore, I have declared that which I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now when I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. You see, the heart of his question is different now. I, I will receive from you whatever you want to give me. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. What's going on here is really a correction of a rebellious heart. Schreiner said, a rebellious spirit that refuses to countenance a world in which God is absolutely sovereign and human beings are still responsible If the question had been asked out of a humble attempt to understand how God's sovereignty in mercying and hardening still leaves us responsible for our actions, the response would have been slightly different. And I believe, by the way, that we get a little bit more of that discussion after this. We'll see it next time. But it's often the case that in order for us to hear those words, we first need our attitude adjusted. We first need to be reminded of our place. We need to know our place. And I believe that you'll know if your heart is right about these things, if your heart's been set in the right position regarding these truths, if you agree with Ecclesiastes 5.2, which says this, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your incredible word. And on a morning like this, where we are face to face with your sovereignty, your greatness, your goodness, and we recognize the need within our own souls to be reminded of our proper position before you. Remind us of our place. Remind us that we are finite and corrupt and much of bro broken, cracked pots, and in need of your healing, your restoration, your wisdom. We're thankful that you receive our questions. We're thankful that we can um, dialogue with you in Scripture and that you've told us so much. But Lord, please guard our, our hearts from becoming arrogant or proud or making demands on you as if we've forgotten our place before you. Thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control of all things, that you are also gracious and merciful. And for the wonderful, blessed truth and promise that remains that all those who will repent of sin and trust in Christ, you, you'll rescue them, you'll save them. We know that work only happens by your spirit. We know your spirit has to work within the heart to transform it, to give it new life. But thank you for that wonderful promise. I pray you'd help us to be ambassadors of truth, that we'd answer questions when they're sincerely asked as best we can, that you'd make us students of the word, but that you'd also remember and place this tool in our toolkit, you know, maybe, maybe behind glass in general, you know, break if necessary, but at times for there to be a moment where perhaps right now what is actually needed is a rebuke. This individual needs to be reminded of their place before the holy God. 
Help us to do that, to speak even those words, that truth, in love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.